Let me invite you to open your Bibles to Psalm 42. This morning we continue our study of the Psalms as we have been throughout this summer. An opportunity to look at a lot of things that we, uh, we may not look at in the course of uh, the year as we are involved in other studies. And particularly what we've been considering is just the, the very real, the very raw nature of the experience of each of the psalmists that speaks to us in a way that a simple theology or even the, the narrative of the scriptures uh, sometimes does not. These psalms, as these are written in a way that you cannot ignore what they are feeling. You can't gloss over it, brush over it, or assume in a way that we sometimes can when we are in the midst of other Bible studies. This morning we come to Psalm 42, which I've been looking forward to uh, sharing. I have uh, thinking about it, and I've said in the past before, that Psalm 42 is, would be Charlie Brown's psalm. If I, or rather, if I had the opportunity to do counseling for Charlie Brown, this is where I would take him. And since I often feel like a Charlie Brown, this is where I spend a lot of my own time. And I think, actually, I know that for a number of you that we've talked, and some of you I've taken through this psalm individually, uh, and I know that there's a lot of others who would benefit. In fact, some of those who we have gone through this uh, have suggested that we uh, we present it, or we, we share it uh, from the pulpit, which I am happy to do this morning. Before we come to the text and to our message, we need to go before the Lord to ask Him to speak to us. Otherwise, this whole exercise is, is worthless, or at least not as rich as it could be. Our Father, we do come now, and we commit ourselves to this time in Your Word that we may hear from you, for all of the Scripture has been breathed out by you for the purpose of instructing and correcting and encouraging and shaping us. And I pray, Lord, that as we consider this particular expression, that we would allow its message to sink in to deep into our, our hearts and into our souls, for it is deep within us that we are in need to apply this. Father, I pray particularly for those who are experiencing difficulty right now, that they may find hope. And for those who are on top of the world, that they may find wisdom and sensitivity and hope for their future. But for all of us, Lord, may we hear through these words of your great love that has already been accomplished on our behalf in Christ Jesus, who is the word incarnated and to whom all these words point us. Father, speak by your Spirit. Heal us and shape us. We pray in Christ. Amen. Psalm 42. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me all day long, where is your God? 
These things I remember as I pour out my soul. How I would go with a throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. My soul is cast down within me. Therefore, I remember you from the land of Jordan and Hermon, from Mount Mazar. Deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have gone over me. By day, the Lord commands his steadfast love, and at night, his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? As with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me, while they say to me all day long, where is your God? Why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. May the Lord grant us understanding and hope from his holy word. On a Sunday evening at the end of October in 1948, the famed broadcaster Walter Winchell took to the airwaves and alerted the nation to an emergency happening in Denora, Pennsylvania, just south of the city of Pittsburgh. An impenetrable, toxic, and ultimately lethal fog had blanketed the steel mill center during the previous week and had silently infected its residents. Communication with, this, with the darkened town, which had no radio station, no hospital, only eight doctors, two full-time firefighters, but three undertakers, Communication was so bad that many of the 12,000-plus residents didn't realize the extent of the tragedy until they began hearing from relatives and friends living outside the region who called in a panic after they heard Winchell's broadcast. Within a few hours after the broadcast, the chief counsel for the American Steel and Wire, fearing the inevitable aftermath, reached the superintendent of his zinc works and told him to shut down all the furnaces. In all, the Denora fog struck down over 6,000 people, 20 of them fatal, five women and 15 men. Nobody knows exactly what killed them, and nobody knows why those who were afflicted and yet survived were able to survive, because according to all of those who were there at the time, not many of those who were stricken had expected to survive. It's a tragedy that was established that took place because of a wide range of circumstances. The mill had been there for a long time and had always puffed up its, its smoke and its toxins into the air, but the winds would come and blow them away and allow people to live just as they did in any other kind of mill town, whether in western Pennsylvania or anywhere else in the world. But at this particular time, there was an unusual weather pattern that just stilled everything, and the temperature of the earth actually was greater than the temperature of the air above. And somehow meteorologists say that when that happens, you have kind of a stall pattern for a couple of days. And so all of the toxic air that would normally be blown away stayed and then would settle beneath the earth's atmosphere. And the people were breathing it in and becoming deathly ill. 
wasn't until a week later when the rains came in, brought in a new weather pattern and cleaned things up that it began to dissipate. But it's a tragic story and it's a reminder, uh, or, or at least an illustration to us, of something that we can see just kind of coming in, something that may seem very ordinary, whether we are able to see it tangibly or not, but it can be deathly for us. The reason that's important is because there is another kind of fog. It's an emotional fog that often, that we've seen oftentimes, but under certain circumstances that nobody is able perhaps to describe or, or to understand. It has a toxic and tragic effect in our lives, and I'm talking about the fog of depression or deep discouragement that is all too common in our culture and seemingly growing at tremendous rates. One doctor writing for the Journal of American Medicine said there's more suffering has resulted from depression than from any other single disease affecting mankind. Depression is a debilitating emotional effect that actually sometimes begins to manifest physical effects. There's different ranges. There's different effects of it. Some people can function very highly and yet still be in some sort of a funk. Other people go deep and become totally dysfunctional. Many who experience it are not really sure why they can function when they can or why they have been debilitated when they've been debilitated. They only know that things are not right. One of the things that I think is sometimes as tragic is people ask a question. The question itself is not tragic, but the response to it. But the question is this, can Christians experience depression? Or maybe they would phrase it in another way, should Christians experience depression? Now, in one sense, it makes, it's a reasonable question because we, of all the people on the earth, have the hope of the love of God who's created all, who has demonstrated to us a love that is beyond our ability to comprehend and promise of a hope that is still to be ours, and yet we can experience it right now. So with that kind of good news, it would be reasonable for some to say, well, as Christians, it just is in, it's just inconsistent that Christians would experience any kind of depression. Others go further and declare that Christians themselves don't experience depression, because if they did, they're, they're betraying their faith. I would suggest to you that Psalm 42, though, says something very different. Psalm 42 does tell us that the people of God can experience deep discouragement and even spiritual depression. I mean, you think about what the psalmist is, is saying here as he's looking, as we look at the, the words here in his circumstance. He begins so poetically, and at least if you're like me, you begin to think of the, the, the song that we sing, and it's just such a pretty song. You can imagine the deer down by the creek, you know, drinking in. But think about it, what it says again, as a deer pants for flowing streams, so my soul pants for you, O God. You know, the deer is not down at the stream in order to make a picturesque moment for us. I generally think of it that way, but that's not why he's there. It's a biological need. The deer needs to be drinking from the stream. He has a need of taking that in. And so the psalmist is declaring, just as a deer is in need of drinking from the brook, my soul is in need of the presence of God. I need to be feeding on God. I need to be drinking from God. And yet he says in verse 2, my soul thirsts for God, for the living God. In other words, whatever it is that he is in need of, he right now does not have access to or he's not appropriating. Here's a guy who is spiritually parched, dehydrated. And he goes on and he explains and asks the question, when shall I come and appear before God? In other words, he's saying that I am far from God. I don't feel that God is near me. 
Here's not, this is not a guy who is wandering away, who is necessarily caught up in, in, in sin or rejecting God. Here he's praying. He's confused. He's frustrated. But nevertheless, he just feels very stagnant. And he's asking, when, how long will this last? When, O oh Lord, when can I come back into your presence? Continues in speaking, and he says something that is uh, very poetic here. When he says, my tears have been my food day and night. In other words, I'm so depressed I can't even eat. And so as the tears are flowing, that's the only thing that I have. And then the people around him are not much help. Whether they are mockers, which seems to be the case for at least some of them, and saying, okay, you know, where's your God now? Or whether they are well-intended Christians who get on my nerves and say, where's your faith? It just further brings on the sense of guilt and depression. And then he starts thinking, I remember these things as I pour out my soul, how I would go with the throngs and lead them in the profession of the house of God. So he's thinking back to days better in his situation where there would be thousands of people going to worship God. And he was not only amongst the celebration of the parade, he was out in front leading the parade, excited, delighted. And he's thinking about that, and that may bring him a moment of joy as reminiscing often does. But soon even those memories come crashing down upon him and the weight of the way that it was and the reminder of how it's not right now only increases the sense of discouragement that he is experiencing. The psalmist is somebody who is in the midst of what we would call spiritual depression. Somebody who is just spiritually dry, though desperately trying to be faithful. Somebody who has not in any way rejected God, but just feels very far from God somebody who desperately wants to have the balance restored to his life, and yet he has no idea how. In fact, he doesn't even seem to have any idea as to how he got into this circumstance in the first place. And the reason I find that significant is because we, at times, whether we preach or try to encourage or counsel, we are so quick to try to give simple answers as if we all should know. But God is saying through this particular psalmist, by the fact that he recorded these words, that sometimes we just don't know. It's life, our lives, our hearts, we are so complicated that circumstances and the wrong mix becomes toxic and depression begins to set in. There is a sense in which we need to look at this uh, passage, and particularly for those of you who have experienced or are prone to depression, and realize this is a permission for you to be you, to be real, that you do not need to hide in shame or feel like you are a lesser Christian because sometimes you find yourself debilitated or in this kind of a funk. understand that God understands. In fact, God has spoken directly to you through this psalmist. And this is instruction to those of you who have never experienced any hint of depression. Your whole life has just been filled with little rays of sunshine. That there are people, and even people of God, who go through times where their experience and their discouragements 
is greater than perhaps their circumstance would seem to warrant. Either way, this is a psalm that's important for us to understand because it may speak to you as a person who experiences depression, or if it doesn't speak to you, it speaks to you as one who knows somebody who experiences depression. And one of the things that we all need to realize is that those who are experiencing spiritual depression, the thing that they need most above all is to have brothers and sisters in Christ who understand and who care to come alongside of them. They don't need a quick fix. They need to be loved, and they need understanding. Now, with this, we need to say this psalm, while it does give, in a sense, permission for us to be real before God, and if we are those who are prone to depression, as I've shared in the past, that I've I found that I have uh, occasionally, it's been a non- long time since I have experienced it, but I realize that this is something that speaks to me. And part of the reason that I am not plunged into it as much, I believe, is because I've learned from this psalm that God not only says, okay, some of you are going to be depressed, but God speaks to us and says, there is a way that you can deal with your depression. There is a way that you can be relieved of your depression, and there is a way that you can be restored in joy. And the psalmist deals with it here in this particular text. The primary thing that he's speaking to us who experience depression or those who want to help others who speak to, experience depression is this. When you're in the midst of depression, the key is to talk to yourself. Now, I know psychologists might say that creates a whole other issue. But hopefully by the time I'm done, we'll have that whole issue clarified as well. The idea of talking to to yourself is not really just uh, uh, something that I've come uh, come up with on my own. But Martin Lloyd-Jones, a Christian leader in Britain of a couple generations ago, uh, is just beautifully asked the question, do you not realize that most of your unhappiness in this life is due to the fact that you're listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself? As he goes on with that statement and that thought, he says, take those thoughts that come to you the moment you wake up in the morning. You have not originated them, but they're talking to you. They bring back the problems of yesterday, etc. Somebody is talking. Who is talking to you? Yourself is talking to you. Now, this man, the psalmist in Psalm 42 treatment was this. Instead of allowing this self to talk to him, he starts talking to himself. Why are you cast down, O my soul, he asks. His soul has been depressing him, crushing him. So he stands up and he says, self, listen to me for a moment because I'm going to speak to you. So the whole idea that Lloyd-Jones captures, which I believe is exactly what the psalmist is doing, is instead of listening to those thoughts that continue to plague you, to say, you're no good. Where is your God? Where is your faith? It's only going to get worse. You tell yourself to shut up and to listen for a moment because you have some things that you have to say to yourself. And the psalmist goes through that in, in particular. We see a couple of things that he does. The first thing you need to say is really not a declaration, but it is a question. It's exactly what the psalmist does. The first thing you need to to do is to ask yourself, what is the source or the root of my problem? The psalmist says, why are you so downcast, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? He's not writing that for poetic effect. He's not writing that as a rhetorical question. He's asking himself and searching deep within himself to find out what is the problem 
What is the source? And he begins to think through his own life. And he wants to discover the source of the problem. It's important for us to recognize that self-awareness that he's seeking for is a good thing. And even John Calvin in the beginning of his institutes reminds us that our wisdom, insofar as we ought to consider it to be good wisdom, true and solid wisdom, comes really from two parts. There's a knowledge of God, theology, and the knowledge of ourselves. Those two things are inseparable in the way that we live our lives. And so it's just simply trying to be wise, whether you're experiencing depression or not, the understanding of why am I feeling the way I am feeling, why am I doing the things I am doing, that is good knowledge to have, and it should be a regular practice of everyone to be asking themselves the question. In this case, the guy is experiencing discouragement and depression, so why am I so downcast? But it's not inappropriate to say, well, why am I so happy today? I mean, what are the circumstances? Am I simply trusting in the circumstances? Am I recognizing God in the providence in the circumstances? The same God who is also present even in the midst of our discouragement. But self-awareness is a vitally important trait for us. One of the reasons we understand that it's important for us is because it's how else are you going to know where to apply the truth of God's promises, the truth of his gospel. If you're not sure where it actually is aching, you need to find the root, the source of the problem, and asking yourself this question, why? Why am I so discouraged? Why am I so distraught? Why am I in turmoil? Now, some might be concerned that that kind of a practice might lead down a a road that is not healthy. And there is a difference between a healthy self-awareness and then just morbid introspection. The question is, is, what's the difference? And I suspect that the difference could probably be found in, in, in really some of the evidences of what you're doing. We've likely crossed a line when we, into morbid introspection, when we find just the idea of self-awareness to be our primary practice in life, that's what we're doing. And the evidence of morbid introspection is when you're in conversation with people and about the only thing that you ever say is, I'm just loaded down with problems. Life is always bad. You're always full of problems and you find no joy. The psalmist here, while giving permission to deal with discouragement and depression, is not saying wallow there. We see hope at the end of this. And that's the reason that God has granted this to us, not only to identify, but to point us to the hope that we have. Morbid introspection is just constantly looking for difficulties and problems in your life. And if anything good is happening, you all of a sudden soon, well, that's just something that's going to be taken away from me too. There's an unhealthy nature there, and and you still need to dig deeper into the real root of the problem if you find yourself prone to morbid introspection. But the question of why am I downcast, asking yourself what is the root of things, that's an important first step in dealing with your discouragement and your depression. But second to that is this, preach the gospel to yourself. Now, for some of you, that's a very familiar phrase because it's become almost a cultish fad within the PCA for the past 20 years. We say it quite frequently here, whether it's me or Camper or Ken or Rob or Ben or anyone else that may be in this pulpit, we use the phrase pretty freely because it's actually a graphic picture of speaking to yourself the truth of the reality of what God has done for you in the person of Christ, not only to cover all of the sin that you and I have just built up over time as we live and breathe and we wander, but also the promises of forgiveness, of restoration, of reconciliation, and the hope that God has said is ours, not because of our faithfulness, but because of his. 
And the psalmist here, when he says, after he asks the question, why are you cast down on my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? He then says, hope in God, for I shall again praise him. Now, we need to realize he's not doing the power of positive thinking. This is not just some, I'm going to speak positive things and then I'll begin to feel positively. What he is doing here is he's pointing his attention to God. He's speaking to himself. He's not preaching to anybody else when he's writing this. This is a diary, not a letter. He's writing to himself, and he's saying, hope in God. And as he's saying that to himself, it's not a chant as if you say that enough, somehow you'll feel good. He's saying, hope in God as a direction, pointing his attention to the God of our salvation, to the promises that God has made, that he will not leave us nor forsake us, that he has already supplied all of our need in the person of Christ, that all of the debt that we sometimes are prone to think that, uh, that we have accrued and the punishment that we think that we are getting in the midst of our, that we deserve in the midst of our discouragement, Christ has already paid all of that for us in order to set us free, to remind us that it is for freedom that we have been set free. We've not been set free so that we can learn how bad, how miserable, and how unworthy we are. As he turns his attention and realizing, here's where I'm hurting, wherever that may be, he now says, hope in God, and he begins to turn his attention to the God of our salvation, realizing that eventually he's going to come out of this funk because God is faithful, and as he realizes that his hope is built upon God, not his circumstances, not his abilities, not his performance, not even his emotions. Normally, you begin to see things change. So in essence, he's preaching the gospel to himself because he's reminding himself of the good news of our great God and what he has done for us. And then the third thing that we see in here is interesting. Because if you look at this text in verse 5, read, why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Now you come to the end in verse 11. Why are you so cast down, O my soul? The same thing. He's saying the same thing, and he ends with that phrase, hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Now, the repetition is significant, and it's important for us to recognize here. I believe one of the things that is important about the repetition and the fact that he ends with this phrase is to remind us that there is no quick fix. There is no shortcut, no remedy. And the reality is different people respond in different ways, depending on the depth of their depression, depending on the causes of their discouragement. We respond differently at a different time. It's also significant because it indicates that this is an ongoing process. See, the fact that he repeats, it's not take the two aspirin and you're fine. It's the repeat as necessary. And the fact that he ends with this does have a rhetorical device and it suggests that it's an ever open-ended process. Not only is it ongoing, 
But it's not a matter of do this once, you should be fine. Do this twice, you should be fine. In some cases, reminding yourself of the gospel will strengthen you enough and things will turn and you'll start feeling better. In other cases, go through that process a, a couple of times. Other cases, it may be weeks that you have to continually remind yourself of the goodness of God and all of the promises that he's made to us before you begin to make a dent and come out of the discouragement and depression. But God, as he's speaking to us, has reminded us that he is our hope. He is our salvation. And recognizing the depth of our, and the source of our, our depression, recognizing the hope that we have in Christ, that is the hope and the remedy that we have for spiritual depression. Now, the last thing I want to do is give the impression that this is like a 12-step way to avoid spiritual depression. There are no real steps for that. And in one sense, even though there's three points, these are principles, practices in our life that God has given to us in order to deal with us where we really are. But it is a reminder that we are, that we are prone to it. One of the things that we need to look at in this is God has given this to us as an encouragement and an instruction on how we are able to get up when we find ourselves plunged into the depth. We like to see people getting up. The movie Rocky went way, way too long in its, in its, uh, its um, sequels because of the popularity of a guy who would get up when he was knocked down. We resonate with that, whether because we're encouraged to see other people getting up or whether we realize we need their encouragement to get up. It resonates with us, and so we're willing to even go and be reminded of someone who will get up even through Rocky 4 and 5 and 6 and 12 and whatever else it is, 73-year-old Sylvester Stallone. Um, Perhaps a better way of, of just ending this is just as thinking about it in this. I don't know how many of you are, are marathon runners uh, that are here and what number of you are. Well, I'm not. One of the things that I am aware of in, in races that I've run in the past is that along the trail, there are stations where the runners will not necessarily stop, but will be able to grab refreshments. They'll get the water. They'll be able to be replenished, refreshed, re-energized, renewed as they continue on their run. But we need to realize that there's not stopping points in our life's journey on our marathon run. But through life, we are able to be refreshed and we find ourselves spiritually dry, parched, that we can remind ourselves of these things, to ask ourselves what is the source of our discouragement, remind ourselves of the source of our hope, and the promises of God in Jesus Christ. And continually feeding on them, drinking them in, will renew us and replenish us for the race that we have to run. Jesus himself had just said, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. And whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. For you and I who want to follow Jesus, sometimes even through the fog of life. We need to cling to the promises that give us hope and apply them in the right way.
and be reminded. As John tells us in Revelation 7, 17, For the Lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. and He will lead them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. For those who are discouraged, cling to that hope. For those who know people who are discouraged, offer that hope. That the Lord would be at work in us and through us to one another and to the world around us. Let's pray. Our Father, we do come with great thanksgiving for these passages, these words. Strengthen us, I pray. To have the courage to look for the source of our discouragement, whether it is self-induced through our own sin and unbelief, or whether it is circumstantial, the pains of this life, its losses, its ugliness that have just worn us down. Father, against those may we cling to the surpassing greatness of the reality of your being and your love and your grace to know that your promises never fail, not because we earn or deserve anything, but because you are faithful even when we are faithless. Father, open our eyes and open our hearts. We might experience the joy that belongs to those who are children of God. I pray this, not only for our joy, for in this, we behold your glory. We pray all things in Christ.